Hey there, everybody. Welcome to Up All Night. My name is Cortland, and with me today is Brandon. How you doing, Brandon? Hey, still good. So today I wanted to talk with you about something that I think we're both pretty interested in. But let me just ask and find out, how would you like to talk about and dip into the world of true crime? Um, I'd hate it. Oh, yeah? I know how much you hate true crime. <laughs> yeah. It, yuck. No thanks. Not for me. I want to know, Brandon, because, like, I know you're interested in true crime. I mean, I was over at your house. I seen the big book of murderers. Right. Is this something right. you've always been interested in? Yeah, honestly. Uh, I can't remember what started it exactly. Yeah. But I had a book of murderers when I was a wee lad, and I was like, huh, this is some crazy shit. It is. I remember specifically you showing me um, Albert Fish, I think, right? Yeah. yeah that that guy's guy uh, nuts. <laughs> yeah. He's out there. <laughs> he's, he's a bit wackadoo. I gotta say, I started getting interested in it a little later than you. Besides this big book of murderers that you had. Um, I was I just like, Cortland, check out these murders. <laughs> Isn't this so cool? Yeah, and I was like, Brandon, what the fuck is wrong with you? <laughs> Put all the blood, Cortland. <laughs> it's the crime scene photos and everything. No, um, I think what I got interested in true crime was when uh, I was working. Um, my first job when I was a teenager, and I would get home from work, and you know we would play video games and stuff uh, at night. And I had a TV in my room, and I'd watch forensic files before I went to bed. And uh, mm-hmm. I think forensic files is really what got me into it because later on in life, after my son was born. Uh, we would, my wife and I would take turns sitting in, uh, the chair with our son, um, rocking him to sleep and everything. And it'd be like three o'clock in the morning and forensic files would be on. So that's what I would watch as I held my dear, sweet baby child. <laughs> that's sweet. It's I know. A really sweet story. I know. I love forensic Just be files. glad it wasn't unsolved mysteries because oh. that would just be terrifying. I you hear that theme song? Oh my gosh. I, I can't don't go to sleep. That. But you know what, Brandon? I got a, I got a case for you today that I kind of want to talk about. And I'm wondering if you've heard about it. You know, I haven't told you anything about this yet. I told you, you know, I want to do a true crime episode. And, and you were like, okay. So I haven't told you anything about what case I want to cover. And mm-hmm. um, I'm just going to say the name. It's a lot of I wanna, crime. I want to know if you heard about it. Heard, heard about right. it. Okay. <clears throat> okay. So, Porco. That... Doesn't ring any bells. Oh, good. I'm glad to hear that. Because, honestly, I think this case is fascinating. It's the 2004 murder of Peter Porco. And if you've never heard about it, I think you'll be in for a wild ride. (laughs) I haven't. Okay. All right, sweet. So, I'm just going to go into a little bit of the background of, uh, you know, the the cast of characters we have, so to speak. And then uh, the murders and then the aftermath. So... Peter Porco lived in Bethlehem, New York. Peter Porco. I know, right? It sounds like uh, a Star Wars character. It sounds like a Spider-Man character. <laughs> yeah, he's got to go work at the Daily Bugle. <laughs> That's Spider-Ham's alter ego. Oh, my God. Peter Porco, he lived in Bethlehem, New York, with his wife of 30 years, Joan Porco. And the couple had two children. I'm sorry, but these names just sound fake. I know, I know. Joan Porco. I I assure you they're real. <laughs> okay, I believe you. The couple had two children, Jonathan and Christopher. At the time, Jonathan, say their full names: Jonathan Porco and Christopher Porco. 
At the time, Jonathan was Sweet in the angels. Navy in South Carolina, while Christopher was a student at the University of Rochester, which was like three and a half or so hours away from Bethlehem. According to Peter's obituary, Peter was a graduate of Albany Law School and the University of, of Albany, and went on to have a career in law. He started um, as an assistant public defender for the Albany County, and later was in private practice with the Albany law firm of Ainsworth and Sullivan. Specialty was representing the interests of children in Albany County Family Court. On top of that, he was very active in his church. He spent time coaching and cheering on Bethlehem's high school soccer and swim meets. Um, I mean, overall, this obituary made him sound like a great guy, which is, you know, okay. what obituaries so do. This is a somebody. Yeah, he was, uh, I mean, he this was a lawyer. had ties to the community. He seemed like a pretty great guy. All right, well, I hope things work out for him. Yeah, right? I mean, he's a treasure. His wife, Joan, was a longtime speech therapist at Jefferson Elementary School. Like, how wholesome is that? <laughs> Man, the porcos. They've got things going on at this point. They're helping kids talk. They're... You know, making sure they get the best of the best. They're great people. On the morning of November 15th, 2004, Peter Porco didn't show up for a trial. So, at the request of co-workers, court police went to investigate the Porco residence. And what they found when they entered the home was Peter's body at the foot of the stairs. And there was a whole lot of blood, Brandon. Uh, It tells a very interesting, terrifying, and surreal story. How'd you like them buzzwords? Uh, surreal's a good word. Yeah. Well, the, I mean, I didn't copy, like, that's, it's, it's a surreal story. I'm not, when you hear this, it's, you haven't heard this one yet? I, yeah. No. Okay. I'll be the judge of this. Okay. So hours earlier, someone used a key hidden in a flower pot near the front door to enter the house while the oh, owners were sleeping. Terrible place for a key. Yeah, I know, right? It's just asking to get destroyed in your sleep, but. So they entered the house. And an axe was taken out of the garage. An axe, Brandon. <laughs> Ooh. I don't like axe stories. I know, right? In their sleep, Peter and Joan were maliciously beaten with that axe, which left oh, them... Joan, too? Yeah, Joan, too. Yep. Oh, poor Joni. The axe was left at the foot of the bed. The intruder cut the phone lines to the house. They slashed a the window. They smashed the alarm system. And they left the scene. At some point after the attack... Brandon, this gets this is where it gets crazy. Peter got mm-hmm. up from his bed and he stood over the sink of his master bathroom, the blood just pouring from his head wound. He left his bedroom and made his way downstairs where he aimlessly wandered the house, attempting to do tasks like unloading the dishwasher and making his lunch. Um I've got questions. Uh, hold on. At some point he opened the front door and looked outside, and they could tell that because of the blood trail. Finally, he succumbed to his wounds and he passed away at the foot of the stairs. When the police found him, it looked as though he had almost been decapitated. And the theory is that he had been moving around his house completely unaware of his wounds. And he had to have been just driven by complete shock. Good God. I know, right? Isn't that... This is an episode of Forensic Files. And um, I've seen this one and I just have been fascinated with it since. Man. Like, obviously, being the one with an almost decapitated head walking around gushing blood everywhere would be, uh, you know, a bit of a nightmare. But yeah, I just I think I would be even more freaked out being someone watching <laughs> someone just walking around making a pot of coffee. Can you imagine how fucking crazy that would be? 
to have like like if they had a security camera and you watched him like aimlessly wander around the house and like unload the dishwasher and shit and his like head is basically not there like that'd be nuts uh yeah i just i've always been interested in this part of the story because it's just so just making a bowl of cereal and then tasting a bite and being like tastes like blood yeah it's just so disgusting and i feel so bad for him because like if he's doing this, like, he is not, he doesn't even know what happened, and it's, oh, I feel so bad. Yeah, that's, uh, wow. It's like a zombie at that point. Yeah, essentially, right? I mean, you know how much I love love zombies. <laughs> yeah, I think I've heard that once or twice. Immediately, investigators noticed something was wrong with this entire scene. I mean, besides the fact that there was literally huh. blood everywhere. Yeah, something is a bit weird. Well, the the weird thing is that the home hadn't been burgled. Uh, Joan's purse was still there with all the money, the credit cards. Peter's wallet and Joan's jewelry were untouched. There was no evidence of anyone going through any of the cupboards, any of the drawers, nothing like that. And to the investigators, it looked like the only intent was murder, Brandon. Yeah, there are some people who just like to smash people with axes. I mean, hey, don't do that. They're uh, out there. (laughs) Maybe right outside your home right now. I don't like to think about that. Out of sight, out of mind, right? We live by that, right? Yeah. So the the attack was so malicious that they, the investigators, they thought that it was committed by either a family member or the friends of the family. Huh. How does that logic work? Are you being sarcastic? Are, like, stranger serial killers, like, usually very delicate? Well, I think what they thought is that since nothing was taken, that it wasn't just a burglary for money and stuff. Because the the person, they slashed the windows and they tried to make it look like it was for a simple burglary. The attack was so brutal that it couldn't have been somebody that didn't know them, you know? They were taking something out on these these people. Uh, I assume that these investigators know what they're doing. I just feel like uh, some people are freaks. (laughs) it's that's true you're not wrong but you know what brandon they go upstairs and in bed they find joan and she's still alive oh god because i've been thinking about joan this whole time yeah you were like what about joan porco Porco? what about what about mrs porco (laughs) even after having suffered multiple blows to the head and face i mean a portion of her brain was exposed she was still conscious Yeah, Detective Christopher Bodish didn't expect Joan to survive her injuries, but asked her, in front of the paramedics, if she knew who did this to her, and she nodded yes. He asked if it was her son Jonathan, and she shook her head no. Then he asked if it was her son Christopher, and she nodded her head yes. Oh, Christopher. Christopher. Chris Porco. (laughs) At this, so Joan was Joan was rushed to the hospital where she would undergo emergency surgeries, and she was placed into a medically induced coma. At this point, the investigation was underway. The first to get in touch with their son Christopher was a newspaper reporter of all people, looking for a comment about the murder. And Christopher, he was at the university that he attended, which was over 200 miles away from the home where his parents were murdered. In response, he called the police to find out what happened to his parents and was told about his father being killed and his mother clinging to life at the hospital. So there's this call that he makes to the police station that you can listen to on YouTube, and I listened to it, and I'm going to go ahead and put it in this episode right here, because you listen to this guy talk, and his tone is so emotionless. Like, 
he sounds like he's calling to find out his bank balance. It's crazy. Mm. If you're gonna attempt to murder your parents and then play <laughs> innocent, like you imagine you've gotta you gotta run through this conversation in your head or even yeah, practice you know it out coming. loud a few times. Yeah. In the mirror, like what? Not Mr. Porco. <laughs> she, she was wanted by a what now? <laughs> yeah. He doesn't give anything. He's just like yeah, I heard my mom was in the hospital. Like, it's, Her brains like, were showing or something? <laughs> something about brains, I don't know. I think my dad's dead. I don't know. It's just, it's really bad. It's very... If I were to listen to that, I'd be like, yep, he did it. No questions asked. <laughs> At some police dispatcher saying north. Hi, uh, my name is Chris Porco. I was just called by the Times Union saying that my parents were found dead this afternoon. Um, I was wondering if you had any information... Hey, Chris, I'm, I'm at school in Rochester, New York. Okay, and are, are you in a dorm there? Yes, I am. Okay. Do you have a dorm name or...? Um, it's called Monroe. Okay. And you're hearing from the Times Union? Yeah, they called me and said my, my parents were found, um, I guess, I don't know, they didn't say how or anything. Let me try and find you somebody who may have some more information for you. There were a few other leads that the police looked into, but they all had solid alibis. Except for Christopher. Go figure, right? Huh. He told police that he'd been at the university in Rochester sleeping on the evening of November 14th and waking up on the 15th of 2004 to find out about the attack. No one at the dorm could verify his alibi. Now, what the police believe happened is that Christopher drove from school to his parents' home attacked them, drove back to school without anybody noticing. The problem here for Chris is that he drove a very specific vehicle. He had this bright yellow Jeep Wrangler, which is, obviously it sticks out, right? Yeah. It's the worst. Murder mobile? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's the word I was looking for. Like, you might as well be murdering in a smart car. (laughs) Murdering in the the Oscar Mayer wiener. (laughs) Yeah. Police obtained surveillance video that shows a yellow Jeep leaving the university dorm area at about 10.30 p.m. on November 14th and returning at 8.30 a.m. on November 15th. All right, case closed. Well, another piece of evidence pointed towards Chris that had to do with the security alarm that was smashed. Remember that? Yeah. Before it was destroyed, it had been deactivated using a code. Oh, that, come on, Chris. I know. Confirmed by Christopher's brother, Jonathan, would only have been known to the Porco family. You're so bad at murder. <laughs> Chris was confirmed to have known what it was. <laughs> it's theorized that Chris destroyed the system in an attempt to mask the fact that he had been the one that used the code to deactivate it. But unbeknownst to him... That information was stored other like I think it was in the basement of the house. So yeah. Police believe that Chris left Rochester about ten thirty PM, drove to the home of Peter and Joan Porco, deactivated the alarm at two fourteen in the morning, then he attacked his parents, he cut the phone lines at four forty nine in the morning, he drove back to school and arrived at eight thirty. The only part that they're not really sure of is if they if he slashed the windows before or after he attacked his parents. And Which doesn't matter. No, it doesn't. <laughs> we know he did it. Yeah, he. I can say without a doubt he did it. As I said earlier, the university was about three hours away. I think it's like a three and a half hour drive. So in that entire scenario, it was completely manageable. 
by Christopher. Like at all, the time all add like lines up perfectly. Mm-hmm. As you can imagine, Chris Porco was arrested for the murder of his father and the attempted murder of his mother. His trial took place in July of 2006, and the defense argued that there was no forensic evidence linking him to the crime. Oh, okay. He didn't do it. Case closed. (laughs) Aside from a tollway ticket with his DNA on it, they stated that anyone that attacked the Porco family would be covered in blood, but there was no blood found on any of Christopher's clothing or inside the Jeep. There's also no fingerprints on the axe. But you know what, Brandon? A neighbor testified that he saw Christopher's yellow-ass Jeep in the Porco driveway at 4 o'clock in the morning that morning. It's not a good look. No, and toll booth attendants that were working that morning recalled seeing a yellow Jeep passing through with who they thought was Chris at the driver's seat. Driving the flashiest fucking vehicle. Yeah. (sighs) Fucking dumbass. You know, I gotta say, though, I feel like there would be security tapes of him driving along you know, toll booths, but maybe they didn't have that back in 2004. I don't know. Not that long ago. It really wasn't. Although there was no evidence of Christopher wielding the axe or placing him inside the home, the jury found him guilty of second-degree murder and attempted murder. He was sentenced to 50 years to life on each account. And Chris didn't show any reaction during the verdict or sentencing. Just like a psychopath wouldn't. Yeah. That's... That's what you think of when you think of people that murder people. They're sitting in the courtroom and they're just like, hmm, okay. Yeah, just like, uh, I got places to be. Can hurry up with this? Yeah, I got prison food to eat. Like, come on. <laughs> I'm tired. One of the most interesting parts of this entire case, though, is that Joan Porco stood by her son during the investigation and trial. When she awoke from that medically induced coma, she claimed to have no memory of the attack at all, or of telling Detective Bodish that Chris was her attacker. Hmm. Being smashed in the brain does weird I, things to the brain. Yeah. Thought. I mean, I've seen pictures of her, because she's still alive, and um, she's a bit disfigured now, as you would be with your skull being bashed in by an axe, right? I would think. I believe she lost her eye from it. Like, one of her eyes is gone. Axes are no joke. Dude. I would not want to be attacked by an axe. It's a big chunk of solid, sharp metal. When she was questioned, she told a story about how there's been a frightening figure of a stranger appearing in her driveway. But, you know what? The police don't care. They don't question it. They don't bring it up again. I have a question, though, Brant. Why do you think Chris even did this in the first place? That's what I've been trying to figure out this entire time. I mean, this kind of thing's usually about money. Yeah. Was Mr. Porco loaded? Yeah, I'd say so. He, um, you know, he was a lawyer. He was loved in the community. And um, I believe he had a very significant life insurance policy as well. So, of course, it was money. That's what it always is. It's either money yeah. or, like, revenge or something. Or, oh, you stole my snack pack, you know. Don't steal anyone's snack pack. Jesus. Snack packs are a big deal. So the 21-year-old university student was in debt. He had been forging his father's signature for loans for school and to pay for his Jeep Wrangler. He was flunking out of school, but obviously he didn't want to leave the party lifestyle and the freedom that he had there. His parents, they had a $2 million life insurance policy that would pay out if they were dead. So it's suspected that Chris decided to you know, murder his parents in an attempt to collect the life insurance policy. Or at least right. half of it, because, I mean, he'd have to share half of it with his brother, so. Pathetic. Pathetic. Overall, Christopher ended up being as bad a murderer as he was a school student. And son. 
He's also bad at that. He is a he is one of the worst sons I've ever heard of. He couldn't kill his mother at all. He left his father alive long enough to fucking wander the house before he eventually died, but horrible. As for the blood not appearing in the Jeep or on his clothes, it's theorized that he simply had scrubs or other clothing on and disposed of them at another place before he entered his Jeep. Something funny about this though, Brandon, a 2013 Lifetime movie was made about his story called Romeo Killer, the Christopher Porco story, which it portrayed, it portrayed Christopher as like a ladies man who was also a sociopath and Chris ended up trying to sue Lifetime, <laughs> but I mean, was he like, hey, <laughs> I'm actually a shithead. No one likes me. From my understanding, Lifetime didn't do much research on him, and they portrayed him incorrectly. And it was, I don't want to say defamation of character, because, like, give me a break, but... I don't think, yeah, you can really (laughs) defame. (laughs) To this day, Christopher is spending his incarceration at the Clinton Correctional Facility in Dannemora, New York. And he won't be eligible for parole until 2052. Good. Yeah, right? That's all I got on Mr. Porco here. But, uh, you know, I was. Th- it took me a while to pick a case to start with. And uh, this one has just always fascinated me. Just because of Peter Porco. That poor man getting fucking scalped. Yeah, that's, and- that's a wild story. It is. It is. It, it's it stuck with me for a long time. And I, I was hoping you hadn't heard about it. But I was okay with it if you had. You know, going back, though, one of the first things that I remember about true crime is one of the stories that I actually considered doing first. Um, do you remember the story back in the 90s of the mom that allegedly killed her two kids and then at their funeral was like shooting fucking silly string on their on the caskets? Yeah, that was the first time I remember true crime because I was, you know, we were kids in the 90s and I seen that on TV and I was just like, why would you do that? Yeah. Any part of that. Why would you do that? Well, I'm, I definitely don't want to cover that one. <laughs> At least not first, anyway. So, yeah. So that's all I got for you, Brandon. That was fun, wasn't it? Yeah. Jolly good time. Yeah, for sure. Um, I hope you guys enjoyed our first take on true crime. And, uh, yeah, maybe we'll have another case for you someday soon. Who knows? All right. I've been up all night, Brandon. I'm out of here. Hopefully I'm not going to get, you know, axed in the head. I don't even own an axe, so we should be safe. I think that every day. You know, they can bring their own axes. Oh, I gotta go. These people are resourceful. (laughs) I'm done. I'm done, Zos. Bye. Bye.